0: I am very accommodating. I ask no questions. I accept whatever you give me. I do whatever I'm told to do. I do not presume to change anything you think, say, or do. I file it away in a perfect order quickly and efficiently, and I return it to you exactly as you gave it to me. Sometimes you call me your memory. I'm the reservoir in which you toss anything your heart or mind chooses to deposit there. I work day and night, I never rest, and nothing can impede my activity. The thoughts you send me are categorized and filed, and my filing system never fails. I am truly your servant who does your bidding without hesitation or criticism. I cooperate when you tell me that you are this or that, and I play it back as you gave it. I am most agreeable. Since I do not think, argue, judge, analyze, question, or make decisions, I accept impressions easily. I'm going to ask you to sort out what you sent me, however. My files are getting a little cluttered and confused. I mean, please disregard those things you do not want returned to you. Oh, what is my name? Oh, I thought you knew I'm your subconscious.
1: Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, Let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion financial advisor, and founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. This is a very special episode. You may remember the name Arnold Vandenberg from the episode with richer, wiser, happier author William Green. Arnold is a special investor and a special person. He was born in Amsterdam in 1939, several blocks from the historic Anne Frank House. Arnold's family, being Jewish, also had to hide from Nazi occupiers. Fearful of being discovered and executed, Arnold's parents arranged for him to be smuggled to an orphanage as a toddler. His childhood and young adulthood was filled with difficult circumstances, but Arnold was able to overcome the anger, resentment, and self-doubt to become one of the most successful investors of our time. More impressively, Arnold is a generous, loving gem of a person and an incredible role model. But we don't talk a whole lot about investing or money. Instead, we focus on the things that make Arnold the person he is, the subconscious mind, overcoming adversity, universal knowledge, self-worth, and so much more. Arnold's willingness to step outside the mainstream, to continue learning, and remain a curious person is inspirational to me, and I hope you'll be inspired as well. Thanks for listening. Hello, Arnold. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am very honored to talk to you today and, and really looking forward to it.
0: It's my pleasure, Jim. First
1: learned about you um, when I read William Green's book "Richer, Wiser, Happier." It's a fantastic read. I've sent copies out to people. I've recommended it to people, and you, uh, your story was kind of at the end of that book, and I was really fascinated um, with you right away. And then I had William Green on the show a few months back, and he talked at length about you and the impact you had on him. And thinking about different things, from investing to really just how to live a life of prosperity and happiness. I was just dying to talk to you, and I really, really am glad that we could get this lined up because I have a whole lot of things that I want to ask you. And for anyone who hasn't listened to the William Green episode, you can do so and get a lot of the background about Arnold's life. And I'm sure, I'm sure Arnold, you'll sprinkle some stories in and give give the uh, listeners some of that, but. I really wanted to focus on some other aspects um, that maybe weren't so much a part of that William Green episode, some things I'm really curious about, and I'm sure many others are as well. So um, if you're ready to jump right into it, sir, so am I. Let's go. Excellent. Well, I'd like to start with something that I'm increasingly passionate and interested in, and we've talked about this in a couple of our prep calls, um, and I've really enjoyed it, is the subconscious mind. I've been reading a lot about the brain behaviors, the subconscious. And it's become very, very clear to me that we really don't know a whole heck of a lot about the human mind and how it works and why we feel you know, different ways and why we act certain ways. Um, you've studied the subconscious for many, many years now. And I want to ask you just starting out, what led you to be interested in the subconscious and what made that mm. become such a focal point of your study in your life?
0: Well, there's actually two major things that happened to me that really got me to thinking. As you well know, my parents were both in Auschwitz. And, uh, you know, we talked about the concentration camps as I grew up and learned different things. But there's one thing that really stood out in my mind. And that was that my dad was telling me about a death march that he was on. He was 85 pounds. He just had regular clothes. It was sub-zero weather. You got two slices of bread or one slice, the equivalent of two slices in today's bread. The water you got from scraping the snow off the guy's shoulder in front of you, you had to march 24 hours, no breaks. The snow was halfway up to your knees, and if you buckled and you got kind of weak, and your knee hit the snow; they beat you, and then, if you didn't get up, they shoot you. So that's a pretty severe situation to be in. Just think of just the cold by itself, like right? The hunger and the thirst and so forth. So as I was reflecting on that, I asked my dad. I said, "Pa, how did you make it?" He said, "You know, that's an interesting question, and I kind of wondered about that myself." But I said to myself, Hugo, what's the most important thing you can accomplish on this march? And that is obviously to survive and not to have your knee hit the snow. Because he said, when they beat you, you almost didn't want to get up, you know. So you're almost dead if you didn't get up. So he said, what I did is I said to myself, there's only one thing I have to think about. I can't think about anything else. I can't think about how hungry I am, how tired I am, how much further I have to go, uh, how angry I am about what's going on. I just had to focus my mind on just making sure that I got a good plant on, on my, when I put my, lift my foot up because it's icy and snow and you could fall. So I concentrated on planting my foot, locking my knee, and just moving my leg the next way, which was a real problem when you got real tired. You just felt like you couldn't go on anymore, and you just kept saying to yourself, just move your foot. And he said, I got into a sort of a rhythm with it. And he said, it was just amazing. He said, I I got energy from that. And he said, the more tired I got, And the more focused I got, the better it worked. And so all I did the whole night, 24 hours, he said, and we started off with a huge group of people and only a small group survived and made it. The other ones, either they left to die in the snow or they shot him. So he says, I got to thinking about it. And he said, you know, there's something about the mind that we don't understand or know. But when you focus the mind so closely, so intensely is the better word, you get some energy out of it. And you, you get energy that you didn't know you had. You just didn't think you could do it. Right. And he said, I can't explain what it, how it works, but that's the way it works. And the way I teach it is, It's kind of like when you were a kid, you had a piece of paper and you had a magnifying glass and you poured it. You you let the sun hit it and it burns the paper. Uh Well, you're just focusing the sun's energy. In a normal situation, it wouldn't burn the paper. But when the sun gets focused so intensely, you can create a fire. So that's the closest analogy I can give you on because I've thought about it for 40 and 50 years. That stuck out in my mind. And I didn't put it together then either, but I had an experience that really showed me how the mind works. And I, you know, as as I mentioned to you, I was in an orphanage from two and a half to six. There was malnutrition in there. I could barely walk at age six. I used to have to crawl most of the time. So I came to America and then my folks after the war picked me up. And my only, the only survivors were my parents and my older brother. We lost about 39 members of the family. The whole family was wiped out. But we made it to America. And I got to uh, East Los Angeles, where we lived, where we moved to from Holland. And I was very weak and skinny. I mean, really weak and skinny. It's just hard to believe. Uh, And no matter what I did, I couldn't gain any weight. And I had a lot of problems studying. I didn't do well in school. It was terrible. I went into like a kindergarten Hebrew school, and I couldn't even pass that. They moved me into another class, which was another story. But anyway, I was really conscious of being skinny and weak. And it was a pretty tough neighborhood. And there was a lot of violence and fighting and bullying and that kind of stuff, you know. And, you know, I would always avoid any confrontation because I sure didn't want to get in a fight with anybody that was just normal strength and weight because it would just be a wipeout. But one time I was forced into a fight. We were taking pictures and somebody pushed me and I bumped into this kid. And he thought I did it on purpose. And he said, okay, Uh, We call it choosing you off, and we're going to fight today at at the afternoon in the bicycle yards. That's where all the fights were after school. Well, I didn't want to go fight. (sighs) I knew that I couldn't do anything. I was weak and skinny and all that. And it was just, I was so scared of the fight. I, I couldn't have been more scared if they told me I was going in front of a firing squad. I mean, you know, just horrible. And he was. I didn't tell any of my friends because I knew I was going to get wiped out. Of this <laughs> day. So I'm climbing the fence over to the bicycle yard. And here's all these guys lined up waiting for me. And this kid was there. He couldn't wait to get his hands on me. He hit me. I went down. He got on top of me and he just beat me to a pulp. And I didn't even offer any resistance. It was just I laid down like a lamb. And I just got beat up so bad there was blood all over my T-shirt and everything. And finally, they left because he got tired of hitting me. It was like a punching bag, you know. So I went home. I was afraid to look in the mirror because I thought that, you know, my face had to be battered and everything. It just felt bad. So I washed my, I remember washing my face, kind of comb my hair. And I slowly moved up, so I could first I see my forehead, I was afraid to look. And I figured I got to have two black eyes, you know, because it would just hit there. But I looked up, and it was just a little scratch there. And I thought, wow, so far, so good. Then I saw my eyes. My, I didn't have any black eyes. And I felt my nose, even though it felt like it was broken, it really wasn't. And my teeth were all in. And I thought, geez, this is pretty good. Then I felt my ribs, and they hurt, but nothing was broken. And I had an epiphany. I thought, holy smokes, this is what I have feared. And this is not that bad. It's certainly not as bad as I feared. I mean, it didn't feel good. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But it shows you that your fears are always worse than reality because you're using your imagination. So that's the first lesson. You have to overcome your fear. And how do you overcome your fear? By facing them. So I took this beating, and it was an epiphany for me. For me, I thought, geez, can you imagine if I would have punched back? I might have not done a lot of damage, but it wouldn't have been any worse than what I got, right? Uh So I immediately had an epiphany. All of a sudden, I was afraid. I was not afraid of fighting anymore because I figured this is the worst that can happen. If I learn to fight, maybe I'll do it a little better. So... I got together with my buddies we used to, you know, practice fighting and boxing and all of this thing and then I got involved and this is where it led me to the subconscious mind. So then I got involved my brother was a rope climber. He grew up on a farm and he was as strong as a horse because he had to get up early in the morning, work on the farm and even help to plow the field and so forth and so on. So he was just the opposite of me. He was a very strong kid. And whenever anybody messed with him and he just hit him once, the fight was over. I mean, it was done. The problem with him is he didn't like to fight. And I was getting to the point where I wanted to be able (laughs) to fight to be able to win. I was an angry kid anyway. So would have really helped. And he always avoided fights. But anyway, the the coach, the gymnastic coach, got him to join the gym team because he was so strong. And he made a rope climber out of him, you know, a rope that hangs down uh, on the gym for 20 oh, yeah. feet. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. those. Yeah. So he said, Arnie, if you come to the gym and climb rope with me, you'll get strong and you'll be able to fight and do all the things you want to do. And I thought, geez, that's great. So I walked in the gym and here's all these guys with these big physiques. And I thought, oh, my God, if I could be that way, it'd be great. So I walked up to the coach. He introduced me to the coach, and I said, uh, I'd like to become a gymnast. And he kind of looked at me, and he kind of caught himself. He was really a great guy. But he, that look he gave baby <laughs> told me I didn't look like a good prospect for gymnastics. You know? <laughs> but anyway, he was wonderful. He did everything he could to encourage me. He said, Arnie, why don't you start climbing the rope, and as you get strength, you can move to the other events. I said, okay, great. So I started climbing two hours a day. I could barely make it up a quarter of the way, but I did chin-ups and muscle-ups on the rings and climbing for two hours a day. And I was felt myself getting stronger. I was getting much stronger, but I was still a terrible rope climber. So one time, the guys were sitting around talking about what sport they're going to go on. And one guy's going out for football and the other guy's going out for basketball, another one for, they said, what are you going out for? And I said, well, I'm going to go out for the rope climb. And there was a kid there who was a bodybuilder, strong kid. And he kind of looked at me kind of like the coach did, you know, and he said, you're going to be a rope climber. And he goes, I go, yeah, I've been working out for two years now. And he goes, you know, just really, I don't know whether he meant it or not, but just really poked me. And, you know, my ego got involved. And I figured this guy hasn't climbed a rope before. And I've been doing it for two years. So I would be able to beat him. Well, what I didn't realize is he was a bodybuilder and he was a very strong kid. And so we had a rope climb contest after the school, just kind of like the fight, only this was a rope climbing and I got beat almost as bad as I did when we had the fight. <laughs> The fight. I was only halfway up and he was already up the road. <laughs> so that was another terrible, terrible experience. And I was going to quit because I thought, geez, if, if I climb two years and two hours a day and somebody can just walk off the street, how am I going to compete in this? Then a thought flashed in my mind and it said, You wanted to climb to get strong and you're getting stronger. Why would you quit? And I thought about that and I said, that's right. Even if I can't compete, I'm getting stronger. And it helped me in future fights that I had already had. I was doing much better at it because I wasn't that great at rope climbing, but I got to be better at the fist fights (laughs) and that made me feel good in itself, you know, right. Uh, But anyway, I started climbing, and then one year, the coach came up to me, and he said, I was in the ninth grade now, and it was a four-year high school, so you can compete in the ninth grade. He said, Arnie, there's only four guys going out for the rope climb, and we need five guys. How would you like to be on the team? And I thought, my God, this is just wonderful. The only problem is, the only reason – I got on the team is because they only had four guys and they needed five. You know what I mean? I was next in line. So I was so bad that you know it was almost an embarrassment to the team. The, the people would yell when you sat down and sat on the floor and you took off, they they yell, go, 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 go. And then by the time a few seconds later, the guy'd be up there. Well, they halfway up, they quit yelling, go, go, go. <laughs> They got tired of yelling you know <laughs> so a 25 foot rope a guy could climb it in, in six seconds and the best I did that year was eight six so now the a, and a tenth of a second is a big deal in the 100 meters right you can right. imagine one tenth is in the 20 foot rope and I was two points slower than everybody else it was terrible but anyway I climbed all year and the next year uh, then after the year ended, I said, coach, is there anything I can do to improve my, you know, my technique? And he said, you know, it's a funny story, but there's a new technique in the rope climb, and it uses the body's movement and the techniques, and and you kick your legs a certain way. It's a little complicated, but it's not difficult to learn. The only thing is, it's brand new. I don't know how to do it, but if you want to watch a guy who was the champion and who uses that technique at the school, you go down and watch him in the championship. I was so excited. I got on the bus when the day of the meet and uh, it was about two hours to get to the school, switching buses. I got there real early, so I wouldn't miss this thing. And I'm all set. I'm just sitting in the front row there and the guy doesn't show up. (laughs) And I am so disappointed, and I'm just sitting there, and it was just like a deep depression. I thought, God, here's my chance to learn something, and I can't do it. So all of a sudden, as I look up, he's running in, pulling up his jersey, fixing his shirt, sits down, and shoots up a 25-foot rope in 4.7 seconds from a sitting position, which was just awesome. Uh I mean, he's just flying straight up. And in the state of mind that I was in, and that gets to the subconscious, I was totally open to it. And I, a thought came to me and I said, you could be this champion. It just came to me. And I thought, my God, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become this guy. I'm going to learn how to climb the way he does. And so on the way I was on the way home from the bus, I was so excited. I was sitting there climbing the rope. In my imagination, people were looking at me at the bus. It didn't matter to me. I didn't care. I was just wanted to get that technique down. Well, when I go to sleep, I would worry that I would forget how to do it. Uh-huh. So I'd wake up at 3.30 in the morning almost every night. So I'd get up in front of the mirror, and I would move like this, and I'd do it for half an hour, and I felt like I got it down. I go to sleep. So now here's where the subconscious comes in. So one day I woke up bright as a just clear blue. I felt very strong. I felt like a different person. And I thought, my God, I'm going to really beat my time today. So all day I struggled through classes. I couldn't stand to listen to the teachers. I just wanted to get to that gym and see if I broke my time. So I got the coach and he says, okay, I'm going to break my time to go ahead and warm up. So I warmed up. I sat down and I grasped a rope and it felt different. It just felt terrific. And I lowered myself down and then they hit the gun and you take off. And when I took off, it was effortless, like I was in a dream. And I was just pulling up and it wasn't a strain. And when I got to the top, I used to have to pull way down and just reach. And I barely scratched the, the pan on the top. Mm-hmm. And this time I got to hit it with my elbow. So I knew this was a fantastic. Game. I'm yeah, hanging up there. Coach, what is it? What is it? He says, come on down. So I come down. I said, what's the matter? He says, Arnie, this is so good. I thought there was something wrong with my watch. <laughs> and I said, there's nothing wrong with your watch. I'm going to do it again. I sat down there 10 times in a row, just smooth and easy and wonderful. I knew something happened, but like my dad, I didn't understand it either. I thought to myself, you know what, coach? I have a feeling that next year I'm going to win the league. And he had that same look when he first saw me. He says, Arnie, this is a real breakthrough, but Every school's got five guys and most of them have better times than you. So to win the league, it's, it's another story. And I kind of caught myself. I was embarrassed. And I said, yeah, you're right. And I walked away and I said, bullshit, I'm going to do it. I really had the feeling it was, that's where the subconscious, you you have a feeling that you can do it. Uh And that's by repetition, repetition, we'll get into that. Anyway, long story short, the next year, Every guy that I met that was a competitor, even though he was better, had a better time, I had no doubt that I was going to win. And I beat every guy except there was one guy who was so much better than me that nobody thought I had a chance. And he was climbing 4.3 seconds on a 20-foot rope, and I was climbing 4.6, and that's three tenths of a second. That's a lot. You're not even in the same league. So we got into the gym and everybody said to me, my buddy said to me, how are you going to beat this guy? Yeah, you know, I mean, he's three, 10 second. I said, I don't know, but I'm going to do it. We don't know what he's going to do that day. Right. So you got to do it the time of the meet. Right. He said, he's got to do it against me. So anyway, the last guy goes last. So I'm sitting second to the last because I had the second best time in the league. And I'm, he's sitting there almost bored. <laughs> he didn't consider me any competition. And he, rightfully so. So I sit down, I had that same feeling, and I shot up that rope, and I hit 4-3, which was just an amazing breakthrough. And he was just stunned. I mean, it was just like somebody hit him over the head. And he went up there, and he climbed 4-6. Wow. So we traded places. So now we get into the league and we tied, but I took a first and he took a first we tied. And then after that, I broke the school record. I broke the league record. I won the league three years in a row. And I even climbed in uh, a national AAU meet, which is all college seniors. There's only three high school kids that even made the meet. I was one of them. And I placed ninth in the nation among, in the national AAU. So that was just an incredible reversal. And I never really understood what made me that successful from one year to the next. So now I graduate from high school. I get married, my high school sweetheart. Uh, we were, went together for four and a half years. We were married for four and a half years. And the marriage broke apart. She took off with some other guy. And I was just devastated. I was so depressed. uh, You can't even believe how bad it was. I was starting my business and I could not work beyond 3.30 in the afternoon. It was just like you at 3.30 in the morning, you know, if you'd worked all day and all night. So I read an article about if you learn to hypnotize yourself and you can put yourself into a hypno nap, which takes about 20, 30 minutes, Mm-hmm. that 20 30 minutes is the equivalent of three hours sleep and i thought my god huh. this will allow me to work three hours a day to get through the depression so I did it every day at 3 30 I didn't even have to tell myself i was just worn out going to hypno. I could work until 10 10 30 at night so that really got me excited and then I got to thinking about my dad you know tying these things in right with the subconscious mind i said, How could you have that much energy after just 20, 30 minutes? Well, you get into a different zone. Psychologists will tell you that when you're in a zone where where you're in the alpha state, your brain is, you know, circulating at 7 to 14 cycles per second instead of 15 and over, which is where we are now in the beta state. When you get in that state, you know, it takes you a couple hours a night to kind of fall asleep, you go into a zone, and then you go into the deep sleep, Uh which you're in there for, you know, maybe an hour or two, and then you start to wake up and so forth. Well, when you hypnotize yourself and you get into that state, you go into it directly. So it saves you all the pre getting into that zone and the afterwards. So it's like one third of a night's sleep. Right. Anyway, so I went to a psychiatrist and I told him the story about the rope climb and I told him about my dad's thing. I said, you what is this thing about the mind? And he says, oh, that's easy. That's the subconscious mind. I didn't even know what a subconscious mind was. But what I've learned is when you intensely focus with great desire and commitment, you activate your subconscious mind. So you don't even have to understand it. You just have to do it let me
1: let me ask you this, Arnold. I, I was listening to a presentation you gave. You were talking about solving problems. I mm-hmm. think p- it, this in particular was about you know portfolio management or or investing, but it it doesn't matter. It could be anything. And you basically said one way, one effective tool, if you're trying to solve a problem, is to think really hard on it, really focus on it like you were describing, and then stop. Stop thinking about it actively. And let your subconscious continue to work on it. And we've all had those aha moments, right? Where we're like, oh, that's it. You know, uh, I I stopped trying to think about it. Um, How powerful is that? And is that part of what you think you've learned to do over the years is to focus intently and then to back off a little bit and let your mind continue to work through whatever that particular problem is?
0: Absolutely. Now, let me give you the example. When I told the psychiatrist what happened to the with my rope climbing career he says that's what you did you activated the subconscious mind you focused you imagined you believed and you continued on and the more it got in there the more the subconscious uh you know worked on it and then one day you wake up and it's like you're in a dream but you're not it's a new reality so let me give you an example i was asked to give a talk i have it here it was in 1982. So this was, you know, 40 years ago almost. They wanted me to talk. A person knew that I was using these techniques, and he was in this class, and he told the teacher about me, and the teacher says, would you come and tell the students how you do this? And I said, oh, I'd be happy to. I was very excited about it. It It's the first time I ever talked about this publicly. And I was doing it every day. And so what happened is I went to prepare the talk, I wrote it out and had it all ready, but I couldn't get the ending. I just, it just didn't, you know how you write something and it's all there, but it doesn't feel good.
1: It happens to me all the time.
0: Okay. So I'm going to tell you. So what happened is I struggled with this for weeks and I couldn't get it. Finally, I said, okay, that's it. I'm putting it away. I didn't think about it for about three or four days. One night I woke up. Crystal clear, just like that time with the rope climb. I knew I had it, and I pulled out a yellow pad, which I keep on my desk at night. I went in the front room so I wouldn't wake up my wife, and I wrote it out, and I have it here, and it's about one minute and 36 seconds because I've timed myself on it, but it wrote everything out, and I only changed one word. It was like somebody was dictating it, somebody with superior intelligence, infinite intelligence, the universal mind, the subconscious, whatever you want to call it. Can I read it to you?
1: Please do. Yes.
0: Okay. Remember, the thing that governs success in any field is determination, the ability to see something through to a successful conclusion. Yet this is exactly where most people fail. The average person will get discouraged and quit many times short of his goal. What is the difference between an individual who dodgely hangs in there against all odds, reason, and hope? It is my belief through personal observation and experience that there is no difference between the individual from a chemical, genetic, or intellectual standpoint. The difference is that the person who's likely to give up at the first sign of hardship does not have a well-defined goal. And if he does, he has not impressed it deeply on the subconscious mind. He might want it, but not badly enough to where he's willing to make an all-consuming, burning desire. Naturally, if it's a weak desire, it'll be sacrificed as the first sign of hardship. Only a deep commitment, a burning desire, and a sacrificial attitude towards that goal will be deep enough to make an impression on the subconscious mind. If that is accomplished, along with the faith that it can be achieved, you will never lack drive or motivation. You will be pulled. Now, most people have to force themselves to do it. When you are pulled from the subconscious is like when you're hungry, you don't have to say, geez, I got to take time out to eat. No, you, you can't do anything else until you eat. That's the subconscious. That's the pulling. That's what you want when you're setting a goal. You want it to be so internal that it's compulsive. You just can't do without it. You'll be pulled by a force that will drive you relentlessly towards that goal. Notice I said pulled. It will no longer be necessary to force yourself to do the things you have to do. You will receive energy that you did not know you had. Think about my dad on the death march. He didn't know where that energy came from. Think about the time when all of a sudden one day I couldn't do something and the next day I could do it because I believed I could do it. Because of these forces, you and you alone will have the power to shape your future. That's it. So when the when my psychiatrist said, what you learned about focus and concentration, if you will do the same thing with your business, the same thing's going to happen. And I got Chills on my right arm. Whenever I hear a great truth, I get a chill on the right arm. And I thought, I knew right then I went home, cleaned out my studio apartment, took everything off the wall, put my bookshelves on there, I had all the books I could afford to read, and I had a goal to finish them all. And all I thought was was building my business. I had no education. I had no great experience except being in a bear market for six years on the wrong side of it. Hmm. So I suffered a lot, but I learned a lot through that. And I really believed that I was going to make it, even though the odds, as you well know, were almost insurmountable. But you develop a faith. And, you know, I didn't do well in school. I barely graduated from high school. But what my rope climbing career taught me is to believe. And I'm going to give you a quote that everybody should think about. At first, when I thought about the mind, it says, the Bible says, as a man think it, so shall he be. That's a quote from Proverbs. Uh-huh. So everybody that talks about the mind say it's all the thinking. But then I thought more. A lot of people think about it, but they never do it. So it isn't just thinking. Then the next thing came, I read a guy and the guy says, if you want to become a loving person, I was studying love and he said, it isn't, you can't just think about it. You have to do it. It's not what you think about. It's not what you want. It's what you do that determines who you are. But what I have come to the conclusion, it's not what people say you are what you eat. It's not what you eat. It's not what you think. It's not what you do. It's what you believe. And that belief is so powerful that it defies all odds. And, you know, you talk to people, and tell them what you're going to do, and they think you're nuts. But you have that faith. And I admire people from all religions who have developed this faith because that's the thing that creates miracles. And if you study yoga, which I have and practice for 16 years, you learn how powerful that is. So uh, the using the subconscious mind is applying the laser focus, just like the magnifying glass in the sun. And you focus that. And the more you focus it, the more you get to believing it. And the more you believe in it, you create reality. Now, let me tell you what scientists say about this. OK, would you like to hear a couple of quotes? Yes, of course. I have have them here, and I have two prime examples that are so extraordinary that I defy any scientist to explain how this is possible, but there's a book called The Wisdom of Your Subconscious Mind by J.K. Williams. He studied the subconscious mind 50 years, and he wrote a book called The Wisdom of Your Subconscious Mind. He's got another one called The Knack of Using Your Subconscious Mind. Let me tell you what he said in the preface of this book. Throughout this book, I have assumed explicitly the dictum of Cudworth that mind is senior to the world and the architect thereof. The creative insight and wisdom of the subconscious mind, when properly understood and correctly, correctly applied, sustained the following statements. First, you are the architect of your destiny. Every experience and condition in your life, poverty, riches, success or failure, health or illness is the result of action and purpose set in motion by you. Circumstances do not make the man, they reveal the man. So it is by your constant thought. And let me just say this. There's some controversy as to how many thoughts we have a day. The lowest I've ever seen on a scientific study is 6,000, but more and more people are starting to think we have sixty to 80,000 thoughts wow. a day, and that is by Deepak Chopra, who's a neuroscientist, who made that statement. Now, whether we have 6,000 or 60,000, think about it. Every thought that you think is going into the subconscious mind and forms the basis of your future. Every thought, think about during the day. Let's just take the low number of 6,000, and you're thinking, and every time you get a negative thing, you put a black dot on the board. If you have a positive thought, you have a yellow dot on the board. What's the board look like at the end of the day? 80% of people's thoughts are negative. Mm. You can see why people have problems. So what you need to do, now just think if you do that for 10 years, Now, remember, the subconscious mind does not think. It acts. Every thought that you put in there goes into a file. And the more dominant it is, the more the subconscious makes sure that it gets activated. And the most most dominant thought is what it works on all the time. So if you are thinking negative thoughts, boy, you are going to attract a blizzard full of negative things in your life. And it's just that simple. But people don't understand it. And more importantly, they don't practice. So that's the first thing. Second, within the area of your life, you have creative power. You can make a mental image or a blueprint of the progress and expansion you want to achieve. And by impressing the concept on your objective mind, subconscious mind, you can cause the condition you visualize in your mind to be created. Creative entity is the self-induced action of mind upon itself within itself. The force behind all progress and achievement is energy created and applied by the mind. Now, that's the answer to my dad. Where did the energy come from? Third, you are radiating power. You are, look at, you're radiating your thoughts, right, by the podcast. By expanding your consciousness, you can attract what you want, Like the lowly amoeba, you can have only what you can surround and absorb within yourself. The universe cannot and does not give you anything. It does give you, however, the power and challenge to achieve, to create for yourself the conditions and resources you want. Mm. Fourth, you are building the directing power of your life. Life develops only by mental and emotional power within. Century goes, Herm, supposed to be one of the greatest philosophers of all time, says, all is mind. Everything that you are experiencing today is a result of previous thoughts that you've had, and that's what creates it both good and bad. Now, think about that and think about the fact that he's basically saying you create your own reality. Right. Now, a lot of people think that they can't influence it, but it is. Now, let me give you a couple of quotes that will highlight just how powerful this force is. We have no idea, Jim, of how powerful we can be if we just focus relentlessly on what it is you want to do. Now, let me read you. Sir Arthur Eddington was one of the most prominent and important astrophysicists of his time. You look up 20th century, he was one of the top. He made several significant contributions to air physics. He's one of the first physicists who understood the early ideas of relativity along with Albert Einstein. Sure. Sir Arthur Edison was on the same plane as an Einstein. Okay. He took Einstein's theory and popularized it because most people didn't even understand it. Now, look what he said. Sir, Arthur editing is quoted saying, I believe that the mind has the power to affect groups of atoms and even tamper with the odds of atomic behavior, and that even the course of the world is not determined by physical laws, but may be altered by the volition of human beings. Here's an astrophysicist who is telling you that your mind can alter natural laws which means you can affect matter. You can change things. Right. Now, let me give you another one. Gustav Jung, one of the top psychologists in the world, claimed that the subconscious mind contains not only the knowledge that is gathered during the life of the individual, but in addition, it contains all the wisdom of past ages. So your subconscious mind not only remembers what you have learned, but once you get into that state, that alpha state, you can hit the universal mind. And any knowledge that's there, it can attract and feed back to you. That by drawing upon its wisdom and power, the individual may possess any good thing of life from health and happiness to riches and success. Now, think about that. Here is an astrophysicist that tells you you can create influence matter. And here's the top psychologist tells you that you can tap into the universal mind and learn anything you need to know, and it'll come to you. And that's why what you have to do is you work on it intensely so you can let the subconscious know what you really want. And then you go away from it to relax. It's not that you go away from it. It's that in a moment of relaxation, you're taking a bath, you're taking a walk, you're cutting the lawn, You're not really thinking about anything. Right. And now the mind relaxes. It gets down to the seven, 14 cycles per second. And now you're tapping into the creative part of the universe, which is the other 50 percent, your right hemisphere. And when you're you and I are talking right now, the most we can use is 50 percent. But we get into that state, we can reach the universal intelligence. Now, look at this Bertrand Russell. Okay, Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher, and he learned how to use his subconscious mind. He would write six books at the same time. So what he would do, he would t- take a book, write down everything he knew about it and what he wanted to know and create a plot. He wouldn't put it in any order, but he would put it in the file. He had a file in the back of his desk, and that would be book number one. Then he'd go on to the second project, And he would write everything he could, think about it. He said by the time he got to the sixth book, he'd go back to the first one, and he said almost all the work had been done for him. Now listen to this. Work on a subject very intensely, then submit it to your subconscious mind. Speak to it lovingly, instructing it to work on the solution. Then go away from it. When you get back to it in a week, a month, you'll find out that A lot of the work has been done for you.
1: Here's what I think part of the problem is, Arnold, when, when having conversations with people, at least in my experience, we have this deep desire to want to explain everything. And if you can't explain it or someone doesn't like the explanation, they refuse to believe it. And I was having a conversation not too long ago about the subconscious mind and uh, kind of throwing some of my thoughts about it out there. And my friend who was listening didn't happen to uh, buy what I was saying so much. I said, let me offer one um, thing as evidence that that something is, is clearly happening. That's scientific. The placebo effect. Simply by giving someone a sugar pill and telling them that it's going to fix whatever ails them it has the effect of doing just that, at least to some degree. Um, there's no other explanation for that other than the subconscious is accepting the fact that some action is going to occur, they some outcome. It. They believe it, and so it happens. And to me, that's about as much evidence as I need to believe that there's some something magical that we don't understand about the mind that can... can impact our lives in every single way imaginable and even unimaginable
0: ways well let me build on that idea there's a doctor herbert benson i've been reading him i think i first read him in the early 70s and his whole theory is that it's called the relaxation response is his original book but he's written about seven or eight updates from that you want to read the latest one not the first one but What he believed, what you said, that that taught him that belief is so important in practicing medicine. And most doctors don't have any bedside manners. They can't understand. They think that, oh, well, you got this problem. You got to take this pill or you got to take this test and so forth. He said that you could take an average person, which would be subject to 40%, and he has been able to raise the percentage. 70% 70 up to 70% and 80%. And he did that by using techniques to get people to believe along the way. So his practice is basically being a medical psychologist, you know, right. in the sense that you go to him with a problem. And I'll give you a good example. I have cured, I don't know how many people with back problems. By a simple technique that I learned in hypnosis that is just staggering. One time uh, I had an experience where the person had had a severe back problem. It was my wife. I normally don't like to get the family sure. involved, but this is a great example. Sure. So we were standing there and she was just in agony. And she had a lot of problems with her back, scoliosis. And this is when we first got married. So I didn't know what to do. So I picked her up, I put her on the bed, and I figured I'll go get a doctor. And she's laying there screaming. And I didn't know what to do. So we didn't have a family doctor. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. And she's laying there screaming. I thought, what am I going to do? So all of a sudden, a thought hit me. What if I could hypnotize her? Then I put her out of her pain. So I said, Eileen, I'm going to hypnotize you. And she says, no, 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 I can't concentrate. I said, you don't need to concentrate. Just listen to the word. And I started my hypnotic induction. And the first sign that somebody's going under is their eyes start fluttering. And I didn't know whether I'd be able to do it because I'd never hypnotized somebody in extreme pain. So I'm going through the inductions. I'm watching her. I say, oh my God, she's going under. Great. <laughs> I kept it up. Finally, she was out. So she was out for about an hour and a half. And then she started to come to. And I thought, geez, I haven't been able to come up with a doctor yet. Was on a Saturday or a Sunday. Well, I'll just put her out again. So she came through and went through the induction, put her out again. That happened one more time. And now it's in the afternoon, evening. And I said, You know what, Eileen? I don't know why I didn't think about it. I should have just taken you to the emergency room. So I'm going to put you out for the night. And then in the morning, first thing in the morning, I'm going to take you to the emergency room. She said, Okay. So I put her out she woke up before I did. And she said, Arnold, guess what? My back, it it doesn't hurt anymore. It just feels great. I I can move and do everything. And I was a little surprised because I didn't think I'd cured her problem. I just thought I'd put her out of the pain. So I said, well, why don't you get up? So we took a little walk and she walked down the hall and she never had a problem for 35 years. Now, That drove me nuts because I didn't know what I, I thought, geez, what did I say under hypnosis that could have made that much difference? Well, for three years, I never could figure it out. One day, I'm having dinner with a friend of mine, and he was telling me about all the problems he had with his back. And I said, oh, I think I can help you with that. And he said, no, no, I'm already cured. And I said, really? How did you cure it? He says, well, there's a Dr. Sarno.
1: I was just going to bring him up. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting.
0: He's a back surgeon. surgeon. He wrote two books, The Healing Back and The Mind-Body Prescription. And he came to the conclusion that the, the subconscious uses the back as like a fuse on an electrical system. You put too many things on the Christmas tree and it blows a fuse. So the mind uses the back to blow a fuse rather than you going nuts it puts you in pain. You think nothing about that backache. And then as it reroutes the tension, the back gets better. So I thought, that's what happened. I put Eileen up for so long, She she was totally relaxed. And that eased the tension, and boom. And now right. she knew that she didn't have a back problem. So she believed she didn't have a back problem. So anyway, so now... We're getting into, I I have this friend of mine who's a PhD in psychology and a PhD in statistics about the brightest guy you ever could meet. And he was a professor at UCLA, and he went to all the different UCLA doctors to figure out what his back problem was. He had it from the time he was 16 to 17. I think he was 42, 43 at the time. So I said, Ken, I have a theory. Hmm. I, I told him about the hypnosis, and I told him about Dr. Sarno. I said, Dr. Sarno helped me realize that all you got to do is relax and believe, and you could do it through hypnosis. You can do it through meditation. Whatever way you do it, this is the key. He, I said, let's do it on you. You're a psychologist. This would be a great test. He says, great. So I gave him the book. And he lived a few hundred miles away when I was in California. So one day he called me up and he said, "Arnie, are you going to be in town?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "I'd like to come down and talk." I said, "Well, come on down. We'll have lunch." So he came down, and I thought, "Well, I got to remind Ken to read that book because I want to do that study." And uh, first thing I said, we sat down. I said, "Hey, Ken, did you read the book?" He says, "That's why I'm here." I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "I read the book and I'm cured." I don't have any back problems. I'm doing jogging and I'm lifting weights. I thought, wow, this is the answer. So he said to me, you know, Arnie, as a psychologist, I'm really impressed with this. So I'm going to go to Tibet and study with the yogis because they can do things that you and I, if I told you, you wouldn't even believe. He comes back and we sit down and I said, well, tell me what, what what can they do, and what did they learn? I've heard about. They can control their autonomic nervous system, which the West doesn't believe you can do, and they can do all kinds of miracles. And he said, "Arnie, I don't tell people what they can do, because the first thing they do is they question whether I should be a psychologist. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? So, yeah, they they think I'm nuts. Right? <laughs> yeah. My marbles. So he said, but the easiest one to convince people is I was in Tibet and it was sub-zero weather. And they, the yogis, the, the monks went outside. They put a little red blanket on the snow and they meditated for three hours in sub-zero weather. And when they came in and you touched their skin, it was as warm as mine and I was inside. So that convinced me that there is something you can do. And by the way, I don't know whether you ever heard of the book, The Iceman. And uh, if you ever heard about him,
1: he's oh, is a that, guy. Uh, Wim, what's his name?
0: Yeah, yes.
1: Uh, right. I can't think of his name, but yes, the breathing technique. Uh,
0: yes, Yeah. And so he, he goes out into the ice. He swims in ice water and he's been doing this for 20, 30 years. He holds seminar on it's the Think thing. Same thing. He's learned to control his mind. And so that's the situation that comes out of it. But let me just read you one more quote that I really like. George Washington Carver. Most people never really attempt to go in the business of their dream, the business that they love because they don't see or believe that it could be accomplished. But in order to be successful, truly successful, or pardon me for saying this, great at anything, you have to love it. Anything will give up its secret if you love it enough. So he introduces the idea of love as a component of impressing the mind. When you love somebody, you'll do things for them. If you love your field, you don't feel like you're working, you're, you're enjoying it. It's like a musician playing music. You know, he doesn't feel like he's working in a factory. So I have One of the things that I would suggest to people who are listening, people that you want to reach, is to develop a hobby. I have a hobby of collecting quotations, and quotations is a two-way street. Quotations, and I just came to this probably in the last 10 years, although I practiced it for 35 years. I thought that quotations were only a one-way street where you read a quotation, you like it, and it becomes part of you. And that's what I did. But what I didn't realize until much later in life, that the subconscious mind uses quotations to talk to you. So it's a feedback loop. Now, why do some people get excited about certain quotations and other people say, yeah, that's interesting, and that's it? Because the ones that really hit you, is they're answering a question that you have been thinking about, and it's a way of feeding the information, but you don't realize it.
1: They're the ones you need.
0: Those are the ones you need. Now, I'll give you an example of one that changed my life and my business. And this is what every businessman has to conquer. So I was starting my business, but I didn't have an education. I didn't have a track record. I didn't have any qualifications. And so it was hard to get people to say, why don't you hand me some money, you know, because I think (laughs) I can make you some money. (laughs) Uh So I finally got a real good opportunity because I had a friend that I had made some money for and had been investing for a few years. And he referred me to a friend of his and he told them all about me. And I thought that, and he thought that the guy would probably want to sign up with me. And I was very excited Laid out everything I had, but it wasn't that much. So he was impressed with what I've done in a short period of time. But that, as you well know, in the market, that doesn't mean anything. You know, that correct? Could be yeah. work, it could be in the right time, So I didn't get the didn't get the business. So I went back to my office. I was kind of depressed, and I just rented this office with a friend of mine. And I thought, geez, how am I going to build this business? If I don't have the track record, you know, now I've been studying it for six or seven years in the down market. So I learned a lot, but there's no way I could prove that. Right. So I'm sitting there and my, I had a part-time girl and she comes in with all these annual reports and all the mail handful. And as she's walking to the desk, I could see that some of the stuff was slipping out. So I went to help her to hold up the, the, the magazine. And there was one magazine that it was just the weirdest thing. It hit like this, spun around, and then landed like this. I mean, it was just like a gymnast. I thought, what's going on? Well, what was facing me, the back was completely empty, and there was only one quote on the back. In big bold letters, it says, I will prepare myself and the opportunity will come by Abraham Lincoln. That thought hit me so hard, I just stared at it, and I thought, that's the secret. I'm trying to get to business when I haven't really prepared myself. So instead of trying to go out and get business, I'm going to go on a study program and prepare myself and believe that when I am ready, somehow the business will come. And I trusted Abraham Lincoln because of who he was. It wasn't just some motivational speaker telling you, you got to do this or that. It was somebody who had lived it. He was self-educated. He became a lawyer. He became a president, all because of what he believed. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I put it myself on a strict program. I lined up my studio apartment, just like with all these books here. I had a goal when each one I wanted to finish. And just to show you, this is kind of a humorous story as a young guy. So now I'm divorced for five or six years. I'm trying to get my business going. I don't have any spare money to take girls out because of the fact that I could barely pay my studio apartment and that was my office, you know? Anyway, so I meet this girl who I was with a fellow in the army and he used to tell me, you know, Arnie, I wish you weren't married because my my, uh, cousin is such a great gal and you and her would hit it off. I said, well, too bad, but I'm married. And so obviously that didn't go anywhere. But when when he found out I got a divorce, he was very excited. He wanted me to come and meet her. So I met her and he was right. We got along great, you know, just really were connected to each other. But she lived in Boston and I lived in L.A. And so I I told her, I says, listen, it's too bad I don't live here. You live in L.A. because I'd really like to date you. But I can't because I can't afford to fly back and forth, and I'm sure you can't either. She, she, she so she said, "Yeah, I understand." So uh, that went away, and then three months later, she calls me up. And she says, "Guess what, Arnie? A girlfriend and I are moving to L.A." <laughs> I said, "Oh, that's great! I was really happy about that." So we got along real well, started dating. Then one day she says, "Arnie." why don't you come over on Wednesday evening and I'll cook you a great dinner. She had cooked a meal and I really liked. It. And she says, I, I can cook you this meal. We'll hang up. And I said, oh, I can't because I have a goal. I I have to study. She says, oh, I didn't know you were taking classes. I said, no, I'm not taking classes. I've got a program where I'm studying and I want to finish the book by the end of the month. And that means I got to read so many pages and had all these books to read about the business. And she says... Well, what would happen if you missed one day? And I said, well, that would throw me off a day. I wouldn't finish the book by the end of the month. And she just looks at me and she (laughs) says, you can imagine if when I tell this to my buddies, they can't believe it.
1: I I love it personally.
0: And and so she says, what are you studying to be a monk? (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't even get that at first. And then I thought about it and I said, oh, okay. That was a bigger
1: diss than you you are really
0: in a zone, aren't you? And I said, look, I'm sorry about that. But I have a rule that I don't date during the week because I'm working the market and I'm studying and I only want to date on the weekends, you know, because I don't want to miss out on anything. But anyway, it shows you the focus. So I've learned to focus these things. And that is what happens. So anyway, Those are some of the insights that you get by learning to live with this. And I would say that people say, well, how do you develop this faith? I'll give you an example. You would know this when you start a business. By the time I started, I had a friend of mine. I was telling him what I was going to do. Uh His name is Bob Phillips and his wife's Lexi. They were just great. They were uh, clients of mine in the insurance business. I was in the previous in the insurance business. So I told him about my plan to go into to start an investment counselor. He says, and he was already pretty successful. He said, Arnie, how are you going to go in investment? Per- Where's your office going to be? And I said, oh, I can't afford an office. I can barely afford my studio apartment. He says, oh, you got to have an office. I said, well, I don't have one. I can't afford one. And he, I said, but I think it's going to work. I've got it in my mind, and that's it. And he said to me, how much do you think it would cost to start an office? I said, you know, I haven't even tried to figure it out because I don't have the money. What's the point? He said, tell you what, we went out for lunch. Why don't we go back to my office and figure out how much it costs to start an office? And I said, well, Bob, what's the point? I don't have the money. He said, I'm going to lend you the money. I said, I didn't even ask him for it. He offered it. I said, really? He said, yeah, let's go back. So I thought, okay. So I figured out a desk, a chair, whatever little I could. I didn't want to run up a big bill, right? Sure, sure. So we came up with $2,500, which 50 years ago or 47 years ago, it's about, I figured it out. It's about $17,000. He sat and wrote me the check for $17,000 or $2,500 equivalent of $17,000. I called my buddy, and he wanted to start an accounting firm, and I wanted to start this, and we split office. Now, look at how things happened. So this was, you could say, well, that was a coincidence, but I don't think it was. So now we go looking for an office, and when I was in the insurance business, we were downtown in an old, stodgy building, and they were paying $0.41 a square foot. So Ray, the friend of mine, said, you know, Arnold, there's a lot of good deals in Stu- in Century City. It was a brand new dream city that was built, and it was just as modern and just beautiful. The only thing is, it was during a real estate depression, and the buildings were empty. It was just like if you go to, during the crash in real estate in Texas, if you go to Dallas, they called them, you could shoot cannonballs through the buildings and you wouldn't hit anybody. Right. So I thought, well, okay, let's go. So we go walk in this building and a guy says, a real young guy who's leasing out real nice, we got along real good. He said, so you guys are trying to build a practice, right? And I said, yes. He said, have I got the office for you? This is the office of the chief executive of a big mutual fund complex that went broke during the, during the crash. And he said, it's just as nice as it could be. I said, oh, Curtis, I still remember his name. Uh, There's no point in looking at that. We couldn't afford that. And he says, let me show it to you. I said, yeah, but we couldn't afford it. He said, I haven't told you the price yet. Come on up. Nice. Okay. I just didn't want to argue with the guy. So he goes up and it's a beautiful paneled office with beautiful carpet and a big office, which my friend took. And I took the smaller office. I paid less rent. And he said, I said, well, Curtis, with all due respect, how much does this office cost? He said, 41 cents a square foot. Oh, he said, what did you pay where you were? I said, 41 cents. I said, you're going to get this beautiful office for 41 cents. I thought he was kidding. I said, oh, that's great. And he said, I'm serious. See, you're going to give us this office for 41 cents a square foot? I said, looked at right. We'll take it. So we took it. And things like that happened. And one day, so people say, well, how did you build the business? And I said, I never had a marketing plan. The only marketing plan I had was my mind. And I visualized this. Now, I don't mind telling you, it took, I probably, it took me probably seven to 10 years before I was making any money where you could say you're, you're profitable. And there was a time when I got married again. I married Eileen. She had two children. And things were really tight, and my business wasn't doing that well, uh, and we were behind. And I built I built up a debt of a of the equivalent. I had twenty thousand dollars in debt, which is equivalent of one hundred forty thousand dollars in today's dollars. And I was only grossing eight thousand, which is the equivalent of about fifty thousand. So I had fifty thousand gross revenue, one hundred twenty thousand, and it was still not making money. And we were living about as lean as you could get. I never believed in debt. This is a very important principle. I borrowed the $2,500 to start. And all I used was American Express card. And that's how we got by. And we did with, I mean, we lived in a place that you would be ashamed to live in. But I wasn't (laughs) going to go in debt. So anyway, this went on. And one night, my wife was helping me. Do the books and she was fantastic. She could do my typing, my letters, the billing, the books, everything. She was fantastic. So she was sitting there filling out the books and I was doing some reading and we're sitting right across from each other. And I looked up at her and she had tears in her eyes. I said, what's the matter? Huh? She said, you know, Arnold, I'm doing the books and I'm looking at the debt and it keeps piling up every month. And I see you working day and night, and I just feel like I want to help you. I said, Well, you're already helping, you're, you're doing everything. She said, I'd like to help by getting a job, and then I could take a salary and help you with the business. I said, No, no, I've already learned that lesson. I just got through with psychiatry for five years, getting rid of my anger and all my problems. And if I, one thing I've learned, if they don't have a good mother and a father at home, I'll be sending them back to the shrink with all the money you made. So we (laughs) we have to believe that we're going to make it and you're going to be home with the kids and be able to raise the kid and you can help me the way you're doing. it. So I, she kind of looked at me skeptical. And so I said, give me one of your checks. She Gave me a check. I wrote it out to Eileen Vandenberg, $250,000 for something you might like. And I signed it and I gave it to her. She looks at me like, what do you want me to do with it? I said, don't cash it this week. But one day you're going to be able to cash it. And I really believed it. And she said, oh, okay." So we left it. So a few years ago, we're driving down the street. She says, you think you can send some more money to my account because I'm getting short? And I said, you mean to tell me you spent all that money I gave you? Because $250,000 in those days was like a million and a half. And she says, oh, I saved the check. I said, you're kidding me. She says, no, I have it. So I have a copy of the check now, and I show it to people when they talk about building a business. So you got to have the faith. Now, the question that everybody asked me, where do you get that faith? And this is, Jim, this is an important principle. The way you get faith is to repeat your goal and visualize it over and over and over. Let me tell you what the advertisers have learned. You watch TV and you see these obnoxious, silly ads, right? Uh-huh. And you say, how in the world is anybody going to buy this BS, right? Yep. But people do. Look, at they keep on advertising. You, you know, nobody would continue to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a commercial if they didn't work. So what are they doing? They are playing this simple, stupid little ad, which you look at it and it gets you relaxed. It gets you just not thinking. That's what they want you to do. They don't want you to think. And that message goes into your subconscious mind. And when it goes in there enough, it hooks you and it forces you to buy some. Now, I'll give you a funny story. When I was in high school... And I was starting to date girls and all that. My hair was very thin, and it would always fall apart. It would just go all over the place. I never could get together. So one day I'm walking down the street, and I forgot whether I was listening to a radio or something. But I heard this song, this stupid song. Brill Cream, A Little Dab Will Do You. you Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen the old uh, ads as well.
0: Yeah. So I thought... Maybe this will work. What have I got to lose, right? So I went out to the drugstore, bought the Brill cream, and sure enough, it worked. And it brainwashed me. I'm still brainwashed. I still use it today. Now, look at the investment they got off their advertising. A little dab will do you. Now, who in the hell would, in their right mind would believe that? But, you know, you got a person desperate, and they opened their mind to it. (laughs) So let, put, let me tell you the interesting thing. I was with my family at Disneyland one day and I didn't have a haircut and I hate my hair long. As a matter of fact, I'm overdue for a haircut. So I am I. Yeah. So anyway, my hair was going all over and I didn't have any bro cream with me because, you know, we're on a trip and I forgot to bring it. So I told my son, Scott, we walk by this little place where they give haircuts to all the little kids. They're like two or three and six years old. He said, dad, you can't go in there. This is for little kids. And I said, look, if I wait my turn, what's the guy going to do? Turn me down. So I walk in there and I said, I know this is for little kids, but I'm in need of a haircut. Do you think I could you could squeeze me in when you're done with the kids? I don't mind waiting. He says, oh, sure. Have a seat. So he's a real nice guy. Turns out he's the hairstylist for all the stars at in the Disney world, you know, the young kids and all that. So I said, you know, if that's what you do, I'd like to get your opinion. I have trouble with my hair and I've been using Brill cream and it works great, but you're in the business. What do you think is the best hair? He says, oh, Brill cream. That's that's old stuff. He said, we got LA looks and, you know, all these fancy stuff. And he said, you ought to try that. And I said, well, when I get back home, I'm going to try it. So I bought a couple of the different ones he recommended. They didn't work.
1: <laughs>
0: You're <laughs> back to I Brill Cream. I didn't believe that they would work, you know? So I went back to Brill Cream. So I am brainwashed, but I don't mind it because it works and I don't have to go looking <laughs> for anything. As long as I believe in it, it works and it works, it's great.
1: The, absolutely.
0: So that's the way that the business world works. And that's how they use the subconscious mind.
1: Arnold, can you can you talk about one thing that's really interesting to me? Um, just going to, to the investment side just a little bit. Sure. I've heard you talk about the reasons that you do not short stocks or, or, or anything. And um, I also do not for various reasons. But I was really interested when I heard your reason. Uh, and it goes back to the subconscious. But I thought it was really fascinating. So can you talk a little bit about why you don't go short uh, on the market or stocks?
0: Well... Yes. And the reason is the subconscious mind. I believe that if any guy who's long and short would understand how the subconscious work, he would never do it. Now, if you're just a short seller and that's all you do, that might work for a while. What happens is when you go long and short, you're dividing your mind. When you go long, you want to hear about a good economy You want to hear about the company increasing earnings and sales and the multiple goes up and you make money. The guy that's looking to short the stock, he's looking for bad times in the industry. He's looking for things that are going wrong with the company. And so he programs his mind to look for negative things and he creates negative things. So now his mind is working on the negative And now on the other side, he's looking for the positive and the things are going. So the mind is in conflict. That's how you create mental problems when you have a conflict of interest. And so you're working against yourself. Now, I have all the admiration of people who can do it, but I don't think they can do it over the long run. And I don't think they're going to end up to be happy people because they're going to be angry, feeling good and bad. And you you can develop some mental problems with it. Now, the thing that caused me to believe about that is that there was a a, a writer in Barrons who used to write for Barrons. His name was Alan Abelson. You may not remember him because he retired about ten years ago. But he wrote for 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 Barrons for about thirty years. I used to read him every week. He was really good. Good insights. You know. Uh-huh. So one time he wrote an article, he said, I have never met a short seller who had a happy childhood. And that Uh rang my bell. And I thought, absolutely. We know that over the long run, the market goes against the short seller, right? Because over the last 30 years or 40 years, it's gone up and up and the short sellers are fighting the trend. So you got to be really good, and you got to be disciplined, and you got to be a better investment than a longer because you're right. going against the tide. You got the tide going against you. So I got to thinking about that, and I got to thinking about what these guys do and what they think. And I told a friend of mine who would, was an investment counselor, and he wouldn't short for his clients, but every time he saw an overvalued, obvious short, he'd tell me about it, and I said, you know what? I would never do that not because I don't think you can make money, but you don't want to divide your mind. You want to think positively. That does not mean that when you see a bear market coming, that you say, oh, it's not going to happen. That's not reality. You can say, well, I can see it's overvalued, so I'm going to do defensive or I'm going to buy the stocks that I think are the best ones to own during that kind of a trial. But you're thinking positive. When you are a short seller, you're always hoping for the worst, and that affects your friendships. It affects your relationship. It affects your relationship with clients. It just programs you in the wrong way. Just think about the subconscious as being a computer. What they say, garbage in, garbage, garbage out. out. Now, if he's thinking about all these negative things and he keeps typing, what's the what's the the, the chalkboard going to look like at the end of the day? It's going to have a lot of negativity in it. He's got to fight that. So I don't see any point in fighting my subconscious mind. I want to be aligned with it, not against
1: it. Yeah. I think that's really, really fascinating take Arnold, because I've heard a lot of reasons not to go short and have my own, but that paradox of, of kind of fighting your own, your own nature, creating some friction in your own mind is, is a really interesting. Yeah, one. And to
0: me. it's people who have conflicts of interest. They feel guilty about it. There's a lot of negativity. Uh, I have a the best definition, Jim, of how the subconscious works, and I have it in front of me. I could read it in about 30 seconds. Would you yes, like sir. to hear it? Absolutely. Go listen. for it.
1: No, go for it. And then we'll move okay. on uh, to a couple other things after that.
0: Okay. I am very accommodating. I ask no questions. I accept whatever you give me. I do whatever I'm told to do. I do not presume to change anything you think, say, or do. I file it away in a perfect order, quickly and efficiently, and I return it to you exactly as you gave it to me. Sometimes you call me your memory. I'm the reservoir in which you toss anything your heart or mind chooses to deposit there. I work day and night, I never rest, and nothing can impede my activity. The thoughts you send me are categorized and filed, and my filing system never fails. I'm truly your servant who does your bidding without hesitation or criticism. I cooperate when you tell me that you are this or that, and I play it back as you gave it. I'm most agreeable. Since I do not think, argue, judge, analyze, question, or make decisions, I accept impressions easily. I'm going to ask you to sort out what you sent me, however. My files are getting a little cluttered and confused. I mean, please disregard those things You do not want returned to you. Now think about negative thinking. Oh, what is my name? Oh, I thought you knew I'm your subconscious. That's exactly the way this is the best definition of the subconscious I have ever read in over 45 years.
1: I can't wait to get your notes uh, on the subconscious, Arnold. I'm really looking forward to that as well. i be
0: happy to send it to you.
1: I uh, Not too long ago, I had on a wonderful lady named Joyce Martyr. She's a psychotherapist, and she wrote a book called The Financial Mindset Fix, and it was geared to really lessons she learned in her clinical practice and how those lessons can help people who maybe don't do well with money or they've had financial setbacks. Uh, Really fascinating discussion. One of the things uh, she talked a lot about was this connection she noticed. Between someone's self image and their self worth and their net worth. And what she realized as she worked with clients who had self image problems and a lot of self doubt, as they worked those things out, inevitably they would start to have financial success. They would get promotions, they would, you know, various things would happen and their finances would end up in a much better position, even though they weren't, you know, necessarily focusing any of their therapy on money or or solving any of those problems. And that made me think of you recently because, you know, I know you had a lot of anger and resentment as a young man, um, you know, because of the Holocaust, because of how you were treated, you know, in, in your neighborhood and various other things. And I know you told a story one time about overhearing a psychologist telling your mother, or I think it was your mother. You you can correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. That, yeah, that perhaps the malnourishment during the Holocaust might have impacted your cognitive ability or or your your ability to learn, and so you probably had some self doubt and thinking you weren't very smart. Can you talk a little bit about how you overcame that self image problem and that anger? You've talked on on the anger a little bit, but how you overcame those things. And, and we're able to start looking at yourself more positively because I don't believe that any of your success could have happened if you continued uh, to look down upon yourself or, or not recognize yourself for, for who you are.
0: Well, I think that's a great question and a great subject. And it's the thing that held me back for many years. Uh, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I didn't make it through kindergarten Hebrew school, which, you know. Is pretty, a pretty low barrier. And I right. remember the rabbi and my dad getting together, trying to convince me that I did OK, but I wasn't going into the same classes that my peers went into. They wanted to put me in another class. And I was only probably at the time was before we came to America. I had to be only six or seven years old. And it taught me a lesson. And they were telling me, and I said, well, why can't I go with the other kids? My friends are in there. And, well, you're going to get a special kind of deal. And they kind of fumbled around, and I could tell they were BSing me. I mean, it was clear, even as a little kid, I could tell this wasn't really the way it was, which made me feel worse, you know. Right. But anyway, the the, the reason that I had that is that my mom hired the top children's psychologist to help me with my problems because I have problems learning everything. And he came to the conclusion was malnutrition. And if you study neuroscience now, they'll tell you that if a kid is separated from his parents, it develops, it develops cognitive problems growing up and it impedes their learning process. Now, they can eventually overcome it, but it has a tremendous impact, which it must have had on me. Matter of fact, just to prove to you that I felt bad about myself is I never did my homework. And it seemed complicated. I didn't think I could learn it. And I became a very successful athlete, and I was fairly popular, and I got along with people and so forth. And one of my good friends, who later was a very bright guy, we were still friends. He wrote in my annual, and I show it in the slides. I have it on the slide. It says, He wrote in my annual as we're graduating, Arnold, you are really a cool guy. I hope we'll always be buddies. You're kind of dumb, but you're still cool. (laughs) And I'm looking at my manual, uh, my annual, you know. Now, the interesting thing is I didn't even get mad at that because I sort of agreed with him. I mean, (laughs) I didn't really feel too smart. Right. And that was a difficult thing to overcome. So I wrote a speech. I just read it this morning because I wrote the speech in 1982. I'm going to republish it because I was just thinking, you know, there's a lot of good material in there. It's the speech that I gave that I told you were the ideas came to me. the to Yes. For the course. yes. Yeah. Yep. So I have that. I'm going to publish it. But anyway, I asked my psychiatrist when I was going to him, well, how do I improve my self-image? Because we got to talking about it. That he suggested that it wasn't real high. He felt that I had good intelligence, but you know, the the self-image is the regulator on how you picture yourself in your mind. So if you don't think you're smart, your subconscious mind is going to design that, prove that you're not smart. And I give the example. Let's say that. You're studying a subject and you look at yourself as a C student. And all of a sudden, for some range, reason, the one part in a moment of carelessness, you learned it and you got an A on the test. So what are you going to do the next thing? The subconscious mind says, wait a minute, he's not an A student, he's a C student. So the next time you either get a D or you fail and an average out, and by the time you graduate, it's going to be back to a C. So it's the same thing with money. I used to work in a gas station for buck fifteen an hour, and then I became a supervisor in printing, then I got into selling. But my income was always plateaued, no matter what happened. Even if I made a big sale, the next few months, it wouldn't go as good. So I noticed this pattern about it. So I asked my psychiatrist, what is the single best way I can improve my image? And here's the good advice. He said, the way you form your self-image is the way it was formed to begin with. When you were in the orphanage and the Germans were out hunting Jews and the people were being cautious with you because they were afraid that maybe they discovered that I was Jewish and it give the whole orphanage away. You get the feeling like you're not really wanted you're rejected. I didn't have my parents telling me I was smart or going to go to college or do all these things. I grew up in an orphanage. And by the time my parents came and picked me up, I already had this low self-image. And that was just reinforced by the fact that I flunked Hebrew school and I didn't do well in other school. I'm, I'm probably the only kid that ever got kicked out of a grammar school. They actually kicked me. They expelled me from grammar school because I was always an annoyance in the class. I was always causing trouble. And I was a real nuisance to the teacher. And just to show you how negative and angry I was. My my kin- my grade school teacher came over, took time out of her busy schedule to come over and talk to my mother about me, so that she could maybe help, you know, make me a decent citizen. Me and my buddies, well, I knew she was talking about me in there, you know, getting me into trouble with my mom. So i le- we we let all the air out of her tires.
1: Oh she gosh.
0: I'll never forget it. You sure delinquent. Enough, I'm, walking out the, I'm not just one tire. I mean, the whole car was on the floor, right? There's floor. I had two or three buddies. We all took one tire and just let out the air with, you know, just take the thing out. So she comes walking out. They both look at the cars. Something wrong with the cars. <laughs> and we were hidden behind the building. And we were just laughing. We thought that was really cool, you know? So... You know, when you're negative and you're angry and you do things, you do a lot of wrong things. Now, here, what was interesting, just to show you how enlightened they were. There was a kid, Bob Tabone, De Phil Del Rio, and Arnold Vandenberg. I was Jewish. Phil Del Rio was Mexican, and Bob Tabone was Italian. And they figured we were all minority kids, and so they would even get us aside in the afternoon and make us take a nap. So, I mean, they really tried to work with the troubled kids, not like today. And they even had a counselor come and talk to me and say, you know, you can't, you're misbehaving and so forth. And I tried not to do it, but it was just, you know, it's compulsive. So the self-image regulates your behavior, the way you treat people. So the psychiatrist said, your idea of your self-image was formed by your parents or the orphanage or wherever you grow up. And if you had a loving people and good parents and everything, you come up with a good self-image. If you didn't, you're going to have a terrible self-image, and that'll affect you the rest of your life. No matter when you get a PhD or whatever, it'll just screw up your life. It is the governor, you know? Yeah. So he said, your image was caused by the people you grew up with, but the image of the future is the way you treat other people now. So if I treat you badly, guess what? You're going to reject me or you're going to do something. And maybe if you're kind, you just ignore me. But most people tip for that, you know? So he says, start treating people good and look out for their interest and develop friendships. And those people will develop love for you and they will care for you. And that feeds, it's a feedback loop, right? Sure. And I took that seriously And I like treating people good, but they were always my friends. It wasn't anybody else. Everybody else was the potential enemy. So I started doing the right thing. And I went to, uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, They used to have, I don't know whether you ever heard about it, but it was an organization called Synanar. And the guy who started it was a reformed alcoholic, and he had figured out how to get over his alcoholism by facing the truth and telling the truth and expressing yourself and getting rid of your anger. So a buddy of mine told me about this. He says, Arnie, it's really fascinating. They put 20 people in the room, there's no leader. And the whole secret of the meeting is you have to tell the truth. No matter what somebody asks you, you have to tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, it helps you know raise your image and feel good and get rid of your anger. So I asked my shrink at the time when I was going with him, I said, do you think that would be a good idea? He started laughing. He said, it's a good idea for you, but I feel sorry for the people in the room. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be dumping all your anger on them. But he I, like,
1: it, I like your therapist.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was cool. He, he changed my life. But anyway, so I started playing the, the game, and my buddy told me what they do, and that would be, be brutal. They, if they think you're lying... They everybody gangs up until until you bust down, you cry. And if you leave the room, you could never come back. Wow. It was pretty pretty heavy. Yeah, that's intense. I better play it cool. So the first night I go in there and I think, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to observe and see what happens. So I'm sitting across there. And this is when I was about 26, 27. So I'm sitting across right after my divorce. (laughs) I'm sitting across a girl. Very attractive girl, very sharp girl. Turns out she was a lawyer on top of that. She said to me, I didn't say anything for a while. And after a while, she looks at me and she knows I didn't participate. She says, uh, is this your first time here? And I said, yes, it is. She says, oh, good. W- Why did you come? I said, well, I understand you can learn things about yourself and, you know, get rid of your anger and learn about the subconscious and so forth. So I, that's what I'm into. I'm interested in learning she says, good. She says, are you married? I said, no. She says, are you divorced? And I said, yes. So I gave her a, n- a nasty. And she said, well, what happened? And rather than just tell her, I gave her a smart I said, well, why don't you ask her? She's the one that left. She, she nailed me. She said, oh, now we're going to blame it on the woman that left, right? And I said, well, that's the way I look at it. She says, that isn't the way I look at it. And I said, "Okay, how do you look at it? She says, I believe love is a closed corporation. Somebody doesn't get involved with somebody else if they're both in love and they're not interested. What happens is if somebody drifts away, then it's possible. So she said, were you having sex with her uh, before she left? And I said, well, quite frankly, no, because we were angry at each other. And I don't feel like getting in the bed with somebody who I'm angry at. Right. right. And I'm sure that the feeling was mutual. She says, well, was she attractive? I said, oh, she was very attractive. She says, well, now think about that. Here you got an attractive girl. She was just two years young. Attractive girl. She was very uh, attractive. She was young and she wasn't having sex. So along comes a guy <laughs> that would like to have sex. <laughs> right. What do you expect? You like you dummy, and I'm sitting there, I'm just, you know, just getting hot (laughs) on my chin and all that, and I'm saying, there. She said, so the thing we want you to realize, the truth of the matter is, it was as much your fault as her, and you drove her to this. You're responsible. Take responsibility. Face the truth. You know, seek the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is my first night, and I'm just sitting there getting beat up, and she's just slicing me like an onion and after the meeting i thought well this is pretty good because i learned something i didn't think about it you know they give you the other side so there there was another one that was kind of interesting there was a girl that came into the group i was in the group for a few months so i kind of knew my way around and she was being very pretentious she came from a very poor home she didn't get an education And she was using big words and her hair was kind of fancy and her clothes was, she just wasn't herself. But there was a guy who was tearing her apart and I didn't want to come after her with what I felt about her because I felt sorry for her. She was getting beat up and I'm sitting right across from her. So at the end of the meeting, they have to say the person you like the best and the person you like the least. So I thought, oh, she's going to choose this guy, Harry. He's just ripping her to shreds. She points at me. She says, You. And I go, Me? I didn't say anything. She says, No, you didn't. But every time I said something, you went, Oh, you know, or Oh, no, or all these, you know, nonverbal communications. She yeah. said, You made me feel as bad as this guy did because I felt he was a jerk and I didn't have much respect for him. And so who cares what he thinks, but you seem like a decent guy you're sitting there and you just think everything I say is just so ridiculous. It just, you know, it gave me a jab. So I thought, wow. Matter of fact, my shrink told me one time, he said, Arnie, whatever you do, don't play, don't play poker because it'll all show on your face, you know? So the bottom line of it is I took her out to coffee. I said, would you mind having coffee with me after the game? She said, sure. So we sat down and she told me her tales of woe, of coming out of poor family, she low self-image. She felt... So I told her about myself and we got to be actually pretty good. And I said, I totally apologize for what I did to you. It wasn't intentional. She says, yeah, you just show your feelings. I mean, it, there's no way I can't read that, you know. So it was an interesting experience. Yeah. And so you, through these different experiences you learn that the way you treat people is the way you build up your image. And then if you stick to what you're doing and you're doing good at what you do it's just like in gymnastics when I started getting better I started feeling like I was capable of more. So it's it grows exponentially, you know? But you start off by doing the right thing.
1: Right? Right. I, yeah, that's fascinating, Arnold. You and you hadn't told me that one before about the oh, about okay. the group. I got that's a lot good.
0: Of stories, but uh, that's good. Anyway, that that I I always look back at that as kind of an interesting experience. I played the game for six months, so I learned yeah. a lot.
1: I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Well, I know you're busy. I want to transition to a couple closing questions um, sure. that I like to ask the guests, and I think you'll have a lot of insight on. Um, and the first one is. What does wealth really mean to you, Arnold?
0: You know, it's kind of interesting because I am in the money management business. And as you know, if you do well, you can make a lot of money. But my main goal, I had three main goals. I wanted a family because I never had any cousins or uh, grandparents or aunts and uncles because they all died during the war. So I always wanted a family. So that was one thing that I really wanted. The other thing is, I always had trouble working with other people. And obviously, the reason was me. So I never got along that well with my bosses. I was always debating and arguing and so forth. And that was my problem. But I didn't realize it was my problem. So I figured the real solution, like my parents were in business, my mom told me that you can be successful in business. So I figured the answer is, if I do my own business, I don't have to take any crap of anybody. I'd be independent. And I could also make good money. But it wasn't like I was out to make millions. But it happened because as this woman said, as your image went up, as your success goes up, and as your business sees, you can't help but make money in this business. And so I made more money than I ever dreamed of, of making. But it all went up in relationship the way I felt. And the more worthy I felt, The better it got. So it is a a, a gradual thing. And what I would uh, say to your readers or your listeners is that you don't know what your image is really like because what you portray to the outside world is different than what you feel inside. So something may have happened that was very traumatic in your childhood. Maybe your parents didn't even mean to do it, but you had this experience with a neighbor or even may, could be your parents. And you got to fix that because it'll drag you down the rest of your life. And here's what I love about hypnosis. I can take a person, put them in the hypnotic stage and regress them back. And I can, I've regressed a, uh, one person that I did it for to the point where they were six months old, laying on the couch their father was feeding them a bottle and you get them back to that age. So you regress them back and then you move them forward and you say, tell me the first time you ever had this bad experience or whatever they're working on. And all of a sudden they'll click. I was 10 years old and my mother did this and this and this. And I had a friend of mine that couldn't understand why he didn't like his mother. And she was a real nice lady reasonable lady and I never could understand why he didn't like her so I asked him one time how come you don't like your mother I mean she seems very nice and reasonable and he says you know I don't know he didn't I said you mean to tell me she he says every time she does something she just upsets me and I said well what is it she does she doesn't matter what you when I get in the room with her I just get upset so I said would you like to find out what it is and he said well, how do I do that? I said, well, I'll regress you back and find out. So it turns out, getting back to 10 years old, his mother married a guy who had a kid. They were both the same age. They got to be bosom buddy friends. They couldn't do without each other. And then they got divorced. So the mother took her child right. and the father took his child, but he wanted to go with his friend. And so he begged his mother that to go with them, well, you know, if you have a mother, you're not going to give up your kid to go with your ex-husband, right? Which was perfectly normal, and if she did, he might have resented her later on for giving her up. But he was so intent, it went subconscious. He forgot even that it happened, and that's the reason he's still angry. And this was 22 years later. right? So, you know... I think the easy way to find out is not to go through years of therapy, but to go to a psychiatrist, and I would use, I'd be a psychiatrist, who somebody can regress you back, go to where the problem is. I'll give you one quick example. My mother convinced me not to have children because I was being smuggled by this 17-year-old girl through the German lines. And she never knew whether I made it or not because the Germans captured her before. So while she's in Auschwitz, she's thinking about, geez, I wonder if my son made it or not and agonized her. So all my life, she was grown up. She told me, look, it's okay to get married, but don't have any kids because if there's a war or something, I mean, look what happened to me. And as I grew up, I thought, well, mom's a little extreme, but I want to have kids and so I was going with this girl, we' plan to get married, and we wanted to have kids. She wanted to have kids, and I wanted to. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to argue with my mom. There's no point arguing with her anyway, if you knew her. But I thought, she'll deal with it when I have the kids, you know, and it's my decision, not hers. But I didn't know that she had gotten to me as a young kid, and it was in my subconscious. So my wife want to have a baby for five or six years. We couldn't have a baby. She got tested. I got tested. Everything's perfect. No baby. So I got to thinking. I said, I'll bet you that somehow this idea of not having baby got into my subconscious mind because I have three brothers and none of them have biological children. Can you imagine four sons and nobody has a child?
1: Yeah, that would—that's yeah. not good odds not,
0: there. That's not good odds. So I thought there's. So I called up my psychiatrist, and he wasn't into hypnosis at the time I was going to him, but he got into it afterwards, and I had gotten into it. So I said, Doctor Rammeljack, how would you like to do an experiment? I have a feeling that there's an emotional block to have a child. Would you like? Oh, he said I've never done it, but we can do it. Let, let's try it. So kind of an experiment. So I went in there. Within three sessions, the first session, he already found the the problem. He removed it, and the next month, my wife got pregnant. So I have a daughter. She's just a great gal, and I would never have had uh, a daughter if it wasn't for that. It was just a block. Now, as rational as I was consciously that wanting a baby, subconsciously, no. So that's the way it works.
1: Yeah. Incredible, Arnold. You're, you know, one thing I've loved about talking to you is you can tell you're constantly learning and you're willing to consider, you're open-minded, you're willing to consider things that um, maybe aren't widely believed. And I try to be the same way because um, obviously we're lacking for explanations for a lot of things. So I I definitely, um, you know, respect you for, for that.
0: Well, thank you. But you know what? the pleasure's all mine because you know i never thought that i would love learning as much as i did cuz certainly didn't in high school but i get such a pleasure when i learn something and especially if it can help other people like sharing an idea like we're doing today somebody will get something out of this that maybe they hadn't thought about absolutely and it comes it it applies if i have one more story i'd like to share with you uh, if you have the time if not we of can course
1: no of course go ahead
0: well i've got as much things...
1: time as you want arnold
0: okay no well one of the things that really plagued me when i was growing up and you can see why i was born and raised in a jewish home my folks went through the camp so being jewish was a big thing to me so i started dating a, a girl in high school my high school sweeter i married she was catholic So you can imagine the conflict. Her parents were strong Catholics, Italian. My parents were strong Jewish. And so her family didn't want me to date her because they didn't want a Jew in the family and they were quite open about it. They wouldn't let me date her after they found out I was Jewish. And you can imagine what that does to my self-image. And then my parents weren't too happy about me marrying a Catholic girl unless she became Jewish. And so neither one of us felt we should push the other one when the religion. And so everybody kept out, well, how are you going to raise the kids? And then I thought, well, yeah, how am I going to raise the kids? How do you do that? So I was plagued with that. And I thought, after talking to ministers and rabbis and everything about what is the truth, I thought, you know what, I ought to learn what I believe myself in religion, because I just grew up Jewish and I accepted it I didn't know any better, and she grew up Catholic, and she was telling me what the Catholics believe, and I thought, geez, how do you believe this, you know? And she was thinking, why do you do these silly things, you know? So I started reading it, and I got interested in studying the religion. And one of the things I always learned in a Jewish, my mom was born in Poland, and she lived in a ghetto, and the Polish people were anti-Semitics, and sometimes the religious leader even provoked different things against the Jews. So I grew up with the idea that the Catholic church was an enemy and uh, so on. And Jesus was an imposter. He was just a cult leader. And, you know, that's the way I grew up. And that's all I knew. And that's what everybody believed. Well, as I got to reading the New Testament, I started studying that and listening to what Jesus taught. And I thought, geez, these are all sound principles. These are all good things. Why, Why do people feel this way? And then I went to talk to the ministers, and they told me that uh, Jesus was the Messiah and the Jewish Messiah, and the Jews rejected him. So I'm thinking, now I'm really getting confused. So I, (laughs) I I had the good fortune of meeting a biblical scholar. He knew Aramaic, he knew Hebrew, and he knew Greek, and he could translate the Bible and do everything. So I told him I was really interested in it. He gave me his books. I read them. And I started studying with him every Thursday. He'd make some time for me to answer questions. question. Wonderful guy. So now it was starting to bother me. I thought, geez, it's possible, looking at the different prophecies of the Messiah, that Jesus could be the Messiah. And what if he is? Can you imagine if I went home and told my parents that I'm now a Christian?
1: <laughs> I, 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 mean, I would I, like to been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Well,
0: no, uh, it wouldn't be nice. But she, she, uh, anyway... It would be like you telling your parents you decided that you're going to go to Russia because you love communism. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. that
0: kind of thing. So I'm just agonizing over, you know, what if if, uh, he is the Messiah? So I'm agonizing over it. And then came the breakthrough through the subconscious mind. I'm thinking about it all the time. And I'm sitting there agonizing. And a thought comes to me just out of the clear blue. And it says, if you want to follow the truth, you have to go wherever it leads you. And I thought of that for a moment. I had a chance to say no or yes, but I thought, you know, that's the real story. What is the truth? Not who's right, the Jews or the Christians or the Catholic or the Muslims or anybody else. What is the truth? So as soon as I accepted that, I felt like a new person, all the guilt and all that. And that's what I became. I became a truth seeker. Somebody asked me my religion. I said, I'm looking for the truth. So when I was talking to my dad about this, he said, "Pa, what do you think about that? And he was very open-minded. He says, Arnold, I've never told anybody this. I don't intend to tell anybody this, but I'm going to tell you because you want to know the truth. I said, okay. He said, when I was in the camps, they had a new load of the trains brought in Jewish people with their kids Uh and all. So they separated the kids. They had this big ditch and they had a fence before that. And uh, so the Germans were sitting there. They were playing music. They were drinking wine and eating cheese, celebrating and all this stuff. Uh, They bring the truckload of people in uh, with a dump truck uh-huh. And they open, you know how the dump truck lifts up and the kids yeah. slide in a yeah. the ditch? They throw gas on them, and they burn them alive in front of the parents. And my dad says, I was an Orthodox Jew at that moment. But I said to myself, if there's a God, where is he? These are innocent kids. If it was me, maybe I did something to deserve it. But what did these kids do? So he said, that's when I gave up my faith in God. But I don't want to influence anybody else. I never wanted to teach that to you, because I always had this deep-seated feeling that there was a God, but just made me question it. So a thought entered into my mind immediately. I said, "Pa, maybe there's something we don't understand, you know." And he looks at me and he says, "What's there not to understand, Arnold? These are little kids. I mean." So as I got to studying religion and all that, I came up with the theory of reincarnation. And if you believe in that, you can see that there's some logical reasons that are beyond the obvious. So it opened my mind, and I've studied all the different religions, and I have quotes from them and learned from them. And basically, what it gets down to is what the Dalai Lama says. You don't need a religion. You don't need a temple my religion is kindness, it's love. And what I learned from uh, Victor Frankl, who was on the same death march as my dad, and I, sent, I think I sent it to you, it's the spiritual truth of love that the highest achievement a person can achieve is love. And love gets rid of fear, it gets rid of anger, it gets rid of all these things. And there's nothing that you can do in your profession that would be a higher achievement than to experience love, and so truth is the doorway to love, and I have this chart that I sent you, The Anatomy of a Lie. If people we would become more truthful with themselves and other people, it immediately improves your life in many different ways, which we don't have time to go into, but there is a book called Right is Might, and this guy spent his whole life studying how important truth is, and how it affects you. And I have a quote here by a woman. Her name is Candice Perch. She was one of the top persons. Jeepak Chopra considered her one of the great scientists. Listen what she says about getting rid of stress. You can get rid of stress through meditation, honesty, and play. Meditation calms the entire organism by slowing the obsessive thinking to which most of us are addicted. Here's what she said about honesty. Honesty brings us back to center. The ground of personal integrity that, when violated, leaves us anxious and filled with self-doubt. So becoming truthful, getting rid of anger, and being a committed person who treats people right is a long way towards becoming successful. And it has nothing to do with the market or any of these other things. But it raises your whole level of thinking, and that brings into true prosperity.
1: Yeah. Well, I know we're we're short on time, Arnold. I want to just thank you really for being so generous and agreeing to talk to me multiple times and sharing your story and your knowledge and speaking about things that um, I think are are oftentimes missing from public discourse because they're maybe not always mainstream or or always explainable. But that doesn't mean they're not powerful and that they can't make a difference. So. Um, I think you're just such a fascinating guy and and really appreciate your willingness to, to talk to me.
0: It's my pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity to share my views. Take care. Thanks, Arnold.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm just such a huge fan of Arnold Vandenberg. I've enjoyed all of our conversations from our prep calls to the recording. He's been so generous and I've learned so much from him. Um, I hope you got something valuable from Arnold as well. Um, I'm excited about the lineup over the next several episodes. We cover some practical topics like estate planning, um, and we have some fun comparing investing to gambling and some other really fun conversations. So I hope you'll listen into those as well. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you'll be notified of new episodes. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.